Section 6 of How the Codex Was Found by Margaret Dunlop Gibson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 6. We had by this time photographed 110 pages of the Syriac Codex, Book 16, the same in which Mr. Rendell Harris found the Apology of Aristides. We had also taken the whole of the Syriac palimpsest of 358 pages, into which no eyes but our own had for centuries looked. Its leaves were mostly all glued together, and the least force used to separate them made them crumble. Some half-dozen of them we held over the steam of the kettle. The writing beneath is red, partly Syriac and partly Greek. The upper writing of this palimpsest bears its own date, A.D. 698. Note. A closer examination shows that it is more probably A.D. 778. End of note. It is all the lives of women saints. The underwriting must be some centuries earlier. It is Syriac Gospels, and something in Greek not yet deciphered. A Palestinian Aramaic manuscript, of which we photographed four pages, is the second example of its kind known to exist that in the Vatican Library having been hitherto considered unique. We photographed also specimens of other volumes, and finished our remaining exposures with 8th or ninth century Arabic translations of the New Testament, which we guessed might prove interesting to our friends of the Bible Society. They show that the monks of this convent had at one time a wish to instruct the Bedouin. There has evidently been a gradual degeneracy amongst the occupants of this place. Some of the Greek codices catalogued by Gardhausen are actually in the handwriting of priors of the convent, who corresponded in Arabic, for their letters are there, with the heads of other monastic houses. Galactean laments greatly that there ever was a defection of the Arabs to Islam. It seems to us, however, that this must have occurred because priests and monks had neglected the duty of instructing them in the scriptures. During the fifteen centuries that this convent has existed, prayers have arisen from it night and day, the liturgy and the sacraments having been continually repeated. But as for being a center of light to the population around, it might as well never have existed. This seems to me, though I am open to correction, to be the inevitable tendency of what we call sacramentarianism, i.e., attention to a ceremonial worship which leaves neither time nor energy for the instruction of the multitude. My sister looked at it in a different light. The lesson we may learn here, she said, is that our ritualists are not up to the mark. The Greek church, which they imitate, celebrates its liturgy eight times in the twenty-four hours, and insists on a fast which they cannot approach to. We must tell them about it. The Lenten fast began on March 5th, and all the nice little conversations and occasional merriment we had had in the library ceased. We worked indeed, and the monks helped us as heretofore, but they looked sleepy, useless, and miserable. Galactean seemed very much puzzled as to how we could reconcile neglect of what he thought a plain duty with sincere faith. I tried to set his mind at rest by writing after our names in the visitor's book. There are diversities of administration, but the same spirit. The day before our departure, we inspected the church, which is full of ancient and costly silver candelabra. In the apse is the shrine of St. Catherine, of white Greek marble. 
Beside it are two very costly shrines covered with silver and jewels, sent by the two empresses Catherine of Russia, to hold their patron saint's remains, but the monks keep these in their original resting place. Below this is the chapel of the burning bush, whose site was discovered by the Empress Helena in A.D. 530, with the help of Arab tradition. The apse has a roof of the richest and best-preserved mosaic we have ever seen. One would rather see the rock. We then inspected a little psalter, which contains all the 150 psalms on 12 pages, faultlessly written. Galatean explained that the monastery had got into the habit of feeding a number of Bedouin, and must continue to do so, although it is getting very poor owing to the loss of its landed property in Romania and Russia. On the last evening of our stay, the Bursar, the holy deacon Nicodemus, took us round the gardens, which he called the only consolation of the monks, and where blooming almonds and olives sheltered beds of beans and onions. We left the convent on Tuesday morning, March 8th, we walked for an hour to the junction of Wadi Ed Dair with Wadi Esh Sheikh, thus striking into a different route from that by which we had journeyed from Suez. At a quarter past eleven we found a beautiful shady niche in a rock to take luncheon in. Here we had a tussle with Hana, who was most unwilling to let us escape the noontide heat by resting until three o'clock. We had previously resisted his attempt to make us start two days later, and thus force ourselves to do the journey in six and a half days instead of the usual eight and a half. It was all to put an additional four pounds in his own pocket. We rode till half-past five and then walked an hour longer, for my back felt as if it were broken with jolting on a saddle which would never keep straight. We got a fright by Hannah tumbling over the back of his camel as he was dismounting, he had been in too great a hurry to wait till the camel had finished kneeling. There were fifty Bedouin encamped around our tents, and very picturesque they looked in the brilliant moonlight. We were greatly edified by listening to a furious quarrel betwixt Hana and the Sheikh Mohammed. We learnt for certain, what we had before suspected, that an inferior animal had been supplied to me, and that Hana had not troubled himself to inspect either dromedaries or saddles before leaving the convent. We started at half-past six next morning, and walked for an hour along Wadi Es-Sheikh. Before noon my saddle became so uncomfortable that I dismounted and insisted on exchanging camels with Hana. He had not been on my camel a few minutes when he discovered that the two horns of the saddle were not in a line with each other, and that no adjustment of packages would make the rider comfortable, so he took care never to mount that camel again. We lunched in Wadi Sulaif, and had an altercation with Hana, who declared that the Bedouin would not allow me to keep to the easy-paced animal which I had taken from him, and which had carried him from Suez to Sinai. At half-past five we found our tents pitched in Wadi Igni, though I had told Hana that we particularly wished to make a long day of it, so as to spend the noon of next day photographing at Serabit el Khadim. We told him that the tents must be taken up and the camels reloaded. Then we walked along in the bright moonlight, trusting that they would follow us. At length we espied an old Bedouin racing after us. He told us we were getting off the track, and that the path for a long distance would be across a mountain ridge, over stones, where a tent could not be pitched. We agreed to encamp at the foot of this ridge, but up came Hana and said the old Bedoui was telling lies. 
He persuaded us to cross the ridge in the moonlight. My sister walked the whole way, as she would not trust a camel's feet on the loose, rough stones, but I mounted wherever there was an ascent. At eight o'clock all our baggage camels passed us, both the cook and the Bedouin greeting us with their Quais Kidi, this is lovely. At length Hannah made them stop, and our sleeping tent was pitched, with much difficulty, by its cords being weighted with stones, not as usual by staves driven into the ground. After it was fixed, a string of laden camels came against a rope which was in the shadow, and knocked it down. The roof of the tent collapsed, Hannah being inside, and bobbed up and down as he was trying to set it up again. The Bedouin cut the scanty brushwood for their fires and for their camels' supper, and as our dinner was cooked in the moonlight, about 9 p.m., a more weird scene could hardly be imagined. Amidst all this discomfort, the patient goodwill of the Bedouin was remarkable. We rose next morning at daybreak and walked down the stony, narrow valley, whose sides were dotted with bunches of pale green plants up to the hilltops, whilst its bed sheltered plenty of the white-flowering torf, which resembles broom. When the camels came up, we had to insist on my saddle being transferred to the one I preferred riding. Hannah stormed at the Bedouin, though we believed this to be the outcome of his own management. And he stormed still more when he found that the camera had been left behind. On emerging from this narrow valley, our path lay across deep white sand for five hours, until we dismounted at the foot of a stony precipice. Here my sister found that her foot, which had been swollen since the day she climbed Ras Sufsafe, had got a wound in the rough stones, and was so painful that she could not walk. This was awkward, for the descent to Sarabit el-Khadim was too steep and rugged to be altogether safe for camel-riding. Yet Hannah at first hurried on, leaving us without a guide, and it was only my shouts which brought a Bedoui to our assistance. He made my sister remount, and under the shadow of a rock, which seemed once to have been a colossal statue, we found that her heel was badly hurt. All remains of ancient grandeur are here in the very last stage of decay, statues whose outlines can only be guessed, and inscriptions being fast assimilated by wind-blown sand to the surface of their native rock. I took two photographs of the very confused and extensive ruins, and was thoroughly glad to reach our tents in the Wadi Suig. Our tents were pitched on Saturday night in the Wadi Gurundal, they were fastened to trees, and I slept fearlessly in spite of the high winds. But after midnight, I was awoke by a strong gust, and found the canvas wall beside me was being lifted from the ground, with every prospect of the pole falling on my sister's side, and we ourselves being left without shelter in the bright moonlight. I held down the rod next to me as well as I could, whilst my screams awoke the Bedouin, and brought my sister to help me. The former came running at once, and for ten minutes they were tugging hard against the wind, shouting to each other and to us, whom they could not see. They at length told us we were quite secure, and we went to sleep again. Next morning we saw the one well which now remains at Elim, a mere hole dug in the sand, where the water sometimes runs very low. In the afternoon we were cheered by the arrival of three travellers, the Reverend Mr. McCollum of Glasgow, and Messrs. Morrow and Small of Philadelphia. The latter were friends of Mr. Rendell Harris, 
They had come on from Wadi Sodur because their tents were nearly blown down, and they thought these would be safer fastened to the trees of Elim. They were the first who gave us news from Europe, since we had left Suez two months previously, and we of course took charge of their letters. My sister was poulticing her heel daily, and these gentlemen strongly advised her not to walk with it. The next two days were spent in a dreary journey over sandy plains, where we suffered greatly both from heat and thirst. As no rock with its welcome shade was to be expected, we insisted on the kitchen tent being taken and pitched for us during our midday rest. Even within it we became covered with wind-blown sand. My sister rode without a shoe, and several times told me that there was something always knocking against her wounded heel. At one time it would be the stalks of a bunch of thorny plants which the Arabs had slung on to her camel for its supper. At another time a water bottle. We were at our wit's end to get anything drinkable. Sucking at the little filter became well-nigh hopeless, Hana being of opinion that the very dirtiest water he could find was the thing to supply it with, and it naturally rebelled against such treatment. Khalil became very ill with the effects of the unfiltered water, which in this limestone district contains a strong infusion of Epsom salts. On the night that we encamped between Elam and Wadi Sadur, he had a furious quarrel with Hana, who threatened to deduct something from his wages if he were unable to do the washing up after dinner, whereupon Khalil shouted, Anta Jahuda, thou art a Jew. We were surprised at the expression, for the Jews are known to be very kind to their suffering brethren, and it was passing strange to hear the children of the bondwoman use the name of the free woman's children as a term of reproach. Our last encampment was betwixt Wadi Sadur and Ain Musa. The wind blew straight on us over the sandy plains from the sea, which was about two miles distant. It shook the tent, and even shook my bed all night. There were no trees to fasten us to, but the Arabs carried our tent ropes beneath the ground before fastening them to the stakes. Next day, at half-past ten, the Bedouin raised a shout of triumph, almost equal to Miriam's, as the crest of a sandy ridge brought us a fine view of the oasis of Ain Musa, with a glimpse of the Gulf of Suez on the horizon. They almost ran, and so did the camels, and we were constantly well shaken before being deposited, and photographed by my sister, beneath some stately palm trees. In vain Hana brought me another pot of filthy, sandy water. I dashed it on the ground, and a Bedouin, seizing it up, returned in a few moments with some clear but treacherous fluid, which my little filter was graciously pleased to accept, and return as a wholesome beverage. I then negotiated with our men for the purchase of their sandals. It required a little tact, for one of them told me he would as soon part with his eyes, doubtless because he did not wish to return barefoot to Sinai. The sandals were only a rough piece of goatskin cut to fit the sole of the foot, and held on to it only by a projection which is passed between the first and second toes. We recrossed to Suez the same evening in a sailing boat, and thirty-six hours after embarked for Marseille on the Messagerie steamer, Sagalian. Having taken a regretful farewell of our Bedouin escort, of Khalil, and even of Hana, whose little tricks we might possibly not have found out so readily if we had not understood Arabic, or had lacked the power of getting information from the monks. My sister suffered greatly from the injury to her heel on the way home, 
and this led gradually on to a serious illness. We learned to appreciate the full meaning of one of the blessings which God bestowed upon the Israelites during their forty years wandering in a region where the strongest English-made boots soon gave way on the rough granite stones. Thy raiment waxed not old upon thee, neither did thy foot swell these forty years. I have led you forty years in the wilderness, said Moses. Your clothes are not waxen old upon you, and thy shoe is not waxen old upon thy foot. End of section 6. Recording by Hannah Mary.